You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So I've been thinking lately just about what it'd be like to be one of the people who's out there with Jesus. You know, like on those evenings, they're, they're traveling together, and on those evenings when the whole crowd, I mean, it's people who are his disciples and other people who are following, uh, you're all, maybe you go to a new town that day, and there's not enough places to stay for everybody. And so out of, on the outskirts of town, you know, Jesus and his followers, you, you just build a fire. And you're all there, all of you, around the fire. You're all with Jesus, who all day, this same Jesus, you're sitting around the fire with him all day. He's been healing people and and casting out demons, a lot of them, and telling this radical story about the kingdom of God coming near. I'm wondering what that was like to be in that group. Like, what would it be like if that scene was in the context of our current reality? You know, I'm thinking Judas and and Matthew would be talking economics, looking at rising gas prices and saying, you know, Jesus likes to travel a lot. I just don't know how we're going to sustain this. Or or Peter and John are comparing how many people showed up at the events that day. And um, John and John and Peter were pretty uh, are Peter, are pretty um, competitive. And so John is saying he thinks that he saw more people that he'd talked to coming that. To the, to the gathering, and, and Peter's pretty sure he saw a demon leave somebody's body. And then there are those guys you never hear about or much about, like Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Philip. They're texting somebody back home. And, and Thomas is taking a selfie with Jesus just mostly to see if Jesus shows up in the picture. <laughs> it's all going on around that fire, you know? And then there's Jesus. This mystery of a man. They're sitting around a fire with a man who has been speaking with authority over demons and disease all day long. They're sitting around the fire with this guy. Jesus is probably not the guy you want to sit next to if you just want to shoot the breeze, you know? Jesus doesn't do small talk, at least that's what I think. But I suspect he doesn't wear you out with the kind of conversation that he does do. I imagine that most of a conversation with him is... It's just like, like Jesus lassoing the moon and bringing it down close so you can see it. That's the way I imagine it being with Jesus. He has this uncanny ability to make everything make more sense, and at the same time, it all seems so profound. Matthew Kelly, a Catholic theologian, says Jesus did not have a casual relationship with the truth. Jesus did not have a casual relationship with the truth. Which means Jesus never took the easy way out. I mean, you know how it is. Sometimes it's just easier to agree, go along, to get along, say nothing, don't get into it with anybody. Jesus wasn't that guy. He never backed off. But he also didn't carry the defensiveness of a person who needed to prove himself, needed to be right. You don't get the sense ever that Jesus is trying to build a case, only that Jesus was the case. Jesus was the case. 
Jesus was, is the radical expression of the image and nature of God. And in Mark, that is the theme, that Jesus is the inbreaking kingdom and the very fact of him, the very power and authority given him by the Father. That demands a response from every human being. Jesus is the case. <clears throat> and that fact demands a response. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this place in Mark where responses are required and responses are given. So turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in, in verse 13. The best way to engage the message is with something to write with, something to write on. I really like it when people take notes, so if you take them in the margins of your Bible or on your phone, it doesn't matter to me. It just helps you to better process what we're learning as we do it together. So Matthew, excuse me, Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. I want you to underline that phrase, those he wanted. And they came to him, that phrase, those he wanted, it, it feels a little exclusive, doesn't it? Depending on my mood and the strength of my faith on any given day, I can feel proud that I'm one he wants, or I can doubt I'm one he wants, or I can feel pretty sure I'm one he does not want. I think those doubts that, put the, that, that, uh, that, that are in my head probably put the emphasis in the wrong place in this verse because this isn't a game of Red Rover that Jesus is playing. This is Jesus making a statement about who he calls, whose heart he wants. So listen, by, by choosing, wanting some very average guys, some competitive by nature, some not the brightest bulbs in the box, at least one very rebellious spirit. By choosing all those kinds of guys, Mark is about to make the point that Jesus wants anyone who will come when he calls. Jesus is willing to risk it with anyone who comes when he calls. So when Mark writes that Jesus called those he wanted when, and they came, the invitation beneath that thought is, when Jesus calls, come. <laughs> and beneath that invitation is this truth. Jesus calls all kinds of people to represent his kingdom, to represent his story to the world. All kinds of people, including you. Look at verse 14. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Listen to this that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. That should sound familiar if you're part of Mosaic. We know this passage, this, this um, piece. This is uh, Luke borrowed from Mark, actually, in Luke 9, 1 and 2. And Luke wrote it this way. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure disease and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal the sick. That seems to me that when Jesus calls people and sends them out, that's the mission Jesus wants them to fulfill. This is the center of gospel activity and the power of it, both for Jesus himself and for any follower of Jesus, to drive out demons and to preach the good news. That's how Mark puts it, drive out demons and preach the good news. So why is it that we so rarely see that as our mission, our call? Why do we see this 
drive out demons, preach good news. Why do we see that as fringe activity rather than the center of what Jesus was and is about? When Jesus himself was all about this all the time, The fact is, when Jesus was walking the earth, and also today, Jesus calls people to cast out demons and talk about the kingdom of God. You should write that down. When Jesus was walking the earth, and also today, Jesus calls people to cast out demons and talk about the kingdom of God. And this call is not for the few, the strange, the other people. Those first disciples were regular people. We've already said this, mostly working class, the most unlikely collection. Can I get an amen from this unlikely collection? We are them. And what qualified them was that they were completely taken by the call of Jesus. What a challenging thought. Are you completely taken by the call of Jesus? Have you ever been? Or maybe once you were and the fire has cooled, do you need to be completely taken again? Look at verse 16. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to him he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I want to look at each of those guys individually, but before we do that, I want to notice that their strength is not in them individually. We know this, but in them together, individually, not one of these guys was much to talk about. But together, as people completely taken by the call of God, they were powerful. They changed the course of history. And that's not hyperbole. These 12 men changed the course of history by their willingness to say yes. I want you to keep in mind that these were all first-generation Christians. Their faith was not like mine, probably not like yours, even though we have some pretty faithful people in this room right now. They were first-generation Christians who were stepping into a worldview they had no experience with. They were stepping into something completely new, probably not with the blessing of their family. So God favored them with first-generation faith. So I want to say that if you're someone who's come to faith in Jesus out of a family that wasn't with you on that journey, you have a really special gift. First-generation faith is a very special gift. Faith is a precious gift to carry. Tougher skin. Deeper. It has to be. So you may not have the benefit of a, of a family surrounding you, pouring faith and Jesus culture into your life, but if you came to faith in Jesus out of a family that wasn't there, there is special favor over that and, and a prophetic invitation, which is be completely taken by the call of Jesus. And if you're someone who came to faith through a family that did love and support you and called you into that faith, there is a special invitation on your life to be completely taken by the call of Jesus. 
But let's look at who these men are who answered the call of Jesus to step into kingdom work. Mark starts with Simon. In fact, every, in every list of the 12, Simon is always mentioned first. Simon's name will be changed to Peter by Jesus. On this rock, Petros, I will build my church. What Jesus is saying is on this first-generation faith, this radical first-generation faith, I will build my church. That's a promise Jesus gave to Simon even before um, Simon became Peter. He gives some people nicknames, and some people get their names outright changed. Peter is one of those guys who gets his name outright changed. Jesus, or God, does this throughout the, the history of, of the story of God. Abram was changed to Abraham. Sarai, Sarai was changed to Sarah. Jacob became Israel after wrestling with God for a whole night. And all those new names came with promises. And I want to say it this way. When God delivers a promise into your life, speaks a promise or a call into your life, for some people that represents a fundamental change of identity that actually comes with a new name. The spiritual principle is when God speaks a promise into your life, he is doing something new in your life. Even if we have to wait for it to materialize, even if we have to wait for years, God is already doing a new thing. So Simon became Peter and the leader among men. James and John were next on Mark's list. They're the sons of a fisherman named Zebedee. And Jesus uh, says, according to Mark, changes their name to Sons of Thunder, Bonerges, Sons of Thunder, because these guys have a temper. Isn't that the best? Which means that Jesus calls people who have a lot of feelings. I want to know, is that the story of anybody in this room who has a lot of feelings? Oh, come on, feeling people, lift them high. Yeah, Jesus calls people who have a lot of feelings. Andrew was Simon's brother, a follower of John the Baptist who became a follower of Jesus when he realized Jesus was the one to whom John pointed. So Jesus calls people who come looking for him. Is anybody in this room, is that your story? You went looking for Jesus. Who in this room can say that was my story? I went looking for Jesus. That's awesome. Jesus, uh, Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, just like Peter and Andrew, and his call was kind of special. In John 1.43, it says that Jesus found Philip almost like Jesus went looking for Philip, not the other way around, which means Jesus also calls people who don't go looking for him. Who in here got found by Jesus even when you didn't go looking for him? We know nothing, virtually nothing, about Bartholomew, he is most likely the Nathaniel of John chapter 1. And if that's true, Jesus gave him a high compliment. He said, truly, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. A man with a pure spirit who did not have a casual relationship with the truth. Who was completely taken by Jesus' call, which means that Jesus calls people who are completely taken by the call. Anybody in here completely taken? taken by the call Matthew is the one who wrote the book on Jesus literally when Jesus met him his name was Levi son of Alphaeus he was a tax collector Matthew means gift of God and maybe Jesus gave him that name maybe it was a, a beautiful redefining 
of a man who, who had not known the grace or given it before he met Jesus, which means that Jesus calls people who are, who are a mess and maybe still are. Anybody have that as your story? Jesus calls people who used to be a mess and maybe still are. Thomas is the Hebrew name of the disciple that we call Thomas. Didymus is his Greek equivalent. Sometimes he gets called Didymus, but that's just the Greek equivalent of Thomas. Thomas got famous by asking questions, by doubting, which means that Jesus calls people who ask questions and even people who doubt. Anybody in here for whom that's your story? Thaddeus may also be a nickname for Judas, but not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. This is the Judas who asked good questions. He once asked Jesus why it was that he revealed himself to his followers, but not to the whole world, which is a good question, which means that Jesus calls people who ask good questions. Anybody in here feel like you ask good questions? I mean, right now, you might be asking Jesus some very good questions that you don't have answers for. Simon the Zealot was probably a member of a Jewish activist political party, which means Jesus even calls people who are politically active. Come on, who in here reads a lot of political blogs? Make sure you're caught up on the politics. Come on. Oh, y'all are just lying right now. Come on. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I see that hand. And finally, Judas Iscariot. His name appears last in every list of the 12 and always with the tag, the one who betrayed him. Iscariot is probably an identification with a radical political movement called the Sicarii, Iscariot Sicarii. Do you hear the connection? This was a group of very committed people who were, whose, they, their thing was they, they wanted to undermine the Roman government, but they did it by killing people. Sicarii literally means daggermen. They would sneak up behind people and stab them with a short dagger, <laughs> a sicar, which means Jesus calls people he holds hope for even if they come with baggage. Anybody here, that's your story? Here's what I know about Judas. He teaches me, because he's one of the 12, that a person can have the favor of God and still lose their soul. For Judas, that was the stubborn insistence that he knew better, even than Jesus, about the mission of Jesus, which seems like a dangerous stand to take, you know, that I know better, never mind what you think attitude. That's the tell of a nagging spirit of rebellion. And it might have showed up in an extreme way for Judas, but I suspect every one of us has a little spirit of Judas lurking around the edges of our souls. We are fallen creatures. We are all contending with that little spirit inside, you know? Some unholy zeal that lurks around the corners that shows up as, as passive aggression or as blaming or you know what the names of your friends are. I don't mean the friends sitting next to you. I'm talking about the friends in here. The defects you've made friends with I want to quote something Heather said recently when she was talking about step six. Just to remind you, step six of the 12 steps says this. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 
They say this step is the one that separates the men from the boys because we don't like having to part with our defects. Our defects of character can be our friends and allies in tough times. We default to them when we're shaky, and, and, they, and they, they feel like protectors to us. So this is what Heather says about her defects. She says, my character defects had created for me some sense of control and an, an illusion of safety. And no matter how false that security may have been or what kind of negative consequences my character defects brought, all I knew for sure is that to let them go meant letting go of what protected me from my pain. I just didn't have it in me, and I still don't have it in me. Even today, this is Heather, though my list may look a little different, I still have a list of defects. I may be gentle and kind instead of aggressive and angry, but I can also be stubborn and inflexible, and I think I know what's best all the time. Those old defenses that rear their ugly heads whenever I feel hurt or offended, I am the one who loves to lead a group and work as a team, but I'm also fiercely independent, a remnant of my old life built around the belief that I can only count on myself and to count on someone else might just bring me pain. This is good, isn't it? I'm quoting Heather, not because I don't have a story of my own to tell about my own defects of character, but because she says so well what I know is also true of me. I have my spirit of Judas lurking in the corners. I know that thing about wanting to hang on to my own narrative so I don't have to stretch to where Jesus wants to take me. I might want a follower's life, but I am always fighting against what comes with it. Am I by myself or am I amening all by myself? I understand what it feels like to keep making excuses for my defects because somewhere deep inside, I prefer them. I trust them more than I trust you for sure. Jesus probably. Who calls people he holds hope for even if they come with baggage. Even if they come with daggers. So maybe if I have a lot of baggage, that fact that he calls people like me, that comes as a comfort, but it's also a strong warning. Because that baggage, those defects, they can't stay. That spirit of Judas will come up behind you when you're not expecting it and stick a knife in your back. That's what those defects that feel so comfortable will do for you if you hang on to them. They will also keep you from claiming the new name God has for you, a name that identifies you with the promises of God. So what are you hanging on to that keeps you from the promises of God? Before we wrap this up, I've got to get into the last section of chapter 3 because it's got something for us that relates to this whole business about the call of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. <laughs> This section leading to the end of chapter 3, it begins and ends with Jesus' family. If you look down at verse 31, now his, his mother and his brother, they're still standing outside. They haven't left 
in the intervening verses, they're still standing out there waiting for Jesus to come out because they think he's gone crazy. And between those two bookends, the beginning where the family is and there at the end of chapter 3 where the family still is, Jesus is dealing with teachers of the law who think he is possessed, which means that if you follow the call of Jesus, you will sometimes be misunderstood. People may see you as crazy, even confuse your behavior for demonic, because they are afraid of Jesus. You may even find yourself wondering if you've gone too far. Hold your finger in Mark 3 and uh, flip back to the very end of Mark, to, to chapter 16. Mark ends in a weird way. There's some other things that later scribes added, but the official ending of Mark is just sort of strange. Mark 16, Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried. Now he's resurrected. The three women who had been his followers, or, or three of the women who had been his followers, came to the tomb so they could tend to his body, but his body wasn't there. And so an angel met them there, and they said, uh, they, they told these women he, that Jesus had been risen from the dead and that they needed to go tell the other disciples, the ones who had been following since Mark chapter 3. And according to Mark, the women read, ran, scared to death, and the official ending of the book leaves it right there. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Isn't that crazy? And somehow that ending sounds very real to me. Because I think anyone who follows Jesus, who answers his call, who encounters him in any kind of meaningful way, will end up sooner or later in that place, maybe more than once, in a desperate, Jesus is crazy, this can't be God, what are we doing here kind of place. And Mark leaves us hanging there as if to say, when you are completely taken by the call of Jesus, it may take you places you're not sure about. Yes, the risen Jesus changes all reality, but me, I'm still a work in progress. So how do I hang on to the promises of God when Jesus calls me to go further than my wounds and comforts want to take me? It's actually a very important question. And remember, Jesus calls people who ask questions. Because if we don't deal with our questions and wounds and comforts, we'll end up with a divided house. And divided houses don't stay standing. Look at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he's driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to them. And he began to speak to them in par parables. I love Jesus. Oh, that's funny you should say that. Let's just think for a minute. Let's logic our way through this. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is, not is, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. 
And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. Do you see what he's done? He's just sort of taken this and narrowed it down right to where they stand. Kingdoms can't be divided. Houses can't be divided. Even a, a, a thing divided against itself, it can't stand. The end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And then he just says this as a friendly warning. Listen, I'm telling you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin, so be careful what you say about crazy people who are completely taken by the call of Jesus. We cannot hold on to both the promises of God, the call of God, and also our wounds, our comforts, our defects of character. That's a house divided. So what character defects in your life need to be acknowledged this morning? What doubts, fears, selfishness need to be confessed, spoken out loud, surrendered, released into the air. What wounds have you allied? That's a big question. What wounds have you allied, held on to, because you really don't want to fly without that net? Those are good questions. Jesus likes people who ask good questions. And Jesus' answer for us today is this. Jesus wants your heart. That's it. That's the moral of all this, this section. And it's the thing he wants you to hear today. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants you to be completely taken by him wholly taken by him so you will come and follow him and hear his call and say yes so are you completely taken by the call of jesus will you stand are you completely taken by the call of jesus It's Jesus we're after, not the things we do for him, not the things he says to us. It's Jesus we're after. Jesus wants your heart. But I want to testify to you this morning that in really rough, rough times in my life, being completely taken by the call has been an anchor for me. When I know, my, when I know the name he's given me, when I know the promises, I can get up tomorrow morning and try again. But when I have let my doubts, my fears, my character defects, my fear of abandonment, my fear of rejection, my anger, my hurt, my passive aggression, all that stuff, when I let that cloud the air, it's hard for me to hear the promises of God. It's hard for me to hear my new name really hard for me to hear a call 
when you can't hear stuff like that, well, you just go back to fishing. Jesus wants you to be completely taken by the call. And you say, well, but I don't have a call. Yes, you do. Jesus wants anybody who's willing to follow him. Yes, you have a call. So I invite you right now. I'm going to pray for you right now. And then we're going to sing. And while we're worshiping, while we're returning to worship, I want to invite you, if you want to come and just let Jesus deal with you up here, this area that kind of becomes our altar area, you're, you're invited to come. Get on your knees and let Jesus deal with you. If you'd like someone to pray with you, just hold your hands out when you come up. You can kneel, hold your hand out. Somebody will come forward and pray with you. Ann or Mike or somebody will come and pray for you. I'll be over here on the side, and if you'd like me to pray for you in any way, healing, a specific situation, something that's going on in your life, I'd be glad to pray for you. Jesus wants your heart. Lord, the prayer seems so simple. <laughs> here, take our hearts. I want them to go up to you like balloons that are completely unweighted, that are filled with helium. Here, take our hearts. Take all our hearts. Take all our hearts. But what I know is that some of our balloons are weighted down by big things, and some of our balloons are deflated. Some of our balloons have been popped. I want for my people in this room so much that they would be able to stand with Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It is the very power of God to be completely taken by the gospel and by the call. But for now, Lord, my prayer is that you would deal with us at the point of the places where we are deflated, where our bubbles have been burst, where our defects are weighing us down. Deal with us, Jesus. Deal with us so we can experience your joy, your power, your goodness, your grace, your pleasure, all of it. God, if you would do that, we would be so grateful. You and you alone, Jesus. You and you alone. You and you alone are all that matter. We love, honor, and worship you. You're invited to come and pray. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.